Let's uh, pray. Gracious, gracious God, we give thanks for this day, for this new year, and we ask that we would be given thankful hearts and positive attitudes that look to what you are doing in this new year, what new thing you are doing. Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to the Christmas story according to Matthew. While Luke's version is an intimate little affair taking place in a stable with shepherds and farm animals, Matthew's version is kind of the opposite, isn't it? It's all about royalty. It's the other end of the spectrum. A king has been born who is an affront and a threat to the local king. While Luke is focused much more on the announcement of the incarnation, God in the flesh, Matthew is focused on the real-world impact of the incarnation. A new king has arrived, you see, but the people of Judea already have a king. They don't like him. At least the regular people don't. The people in power do. But he will not be interested, this king, in sharing his throne, no, not at all. This is reminiscent of 1930s Germany after the rise of Hitler's Nationalist Party. As Hitler consolidated control of Germany, he then demanded that the German Lutheran Church confess Jesus' rule in a way, in a fashion that did not challenge Hitler's rule. Oh, interesting. <laughs> There's only room for one kingdom, you see, and one ruler. Ernst Kesemann, a noteworthy German New Testament scholar, agreed. There is only room for one kingdom, God's. Kesemann became noteworthy by publicly confessing that Jesus and Jesus alone was the Lord of all, including Germany. He was thrown in prison for his confession, unlike Bonhoeffer, he did make it out alive. But he was right. God's reign in Christ is a counter-proposal to the kingdoms of this world, and its very substance is a threat to human power. So, anyone who says Jesus is not political is wrong. He's a king. He has a kingdom. So, of course, he's political. Neither can one say that, well, Jesus, of course, is only concerned with a spiritual kingdom, but not this world. Well, in fact, he came into this world as a human being not to abandon this world, but to reclaim it, to restore it, to recreate this world in all of the dimensions of life, social, economic, ecological, spiritual, private, and yes, public. Jesus is the very embodiment of a kingdom, God's kingdom, that uses power to foster and protect life. Earthly kingdoms all too often use life and lives to foster and protect power. You ever feel used by those in power? These two are not compatible, and one must choose which kingdom you are a part of. If it means if you choose alignment with God's kingdom, 
we are inevitably called to push back in civil protest when our earthly kingdoms are abusing power and not stewarding life. And it doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. Remember, power is always, always a deeply spiritual matter. So, what does the world of Jesus' time make of Christ, the newborn king? King Herod, a.k.a. the Grinch, was the king of the district of Judea, and quite literally, the king of the Jews, huh? Herod, though, was nothing more than an extremely corrupt and willing puppet of the Romans, and perhaps the ruling religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, etc., only marginally a Jew himself in bloodlines and in practice, he was even more marginally interested in serving the needs of the Jewish people. He was much more interested in protecting his privilege. Now, there's no evidence that he knew anything of the birth of Jesus, though. Even, even Zoroastrians from far away were more aware of the newborn king than was Herod. At least three of them were. Enter we three kings who weren't kings at all, but wealthy Persian astrologers who believed in, uh, that an important sign had been revealed regarding a savior, and so they followed a star in the West. The Jewish scriptures were known fairly well by uh, other nations at this time, including all over uh, Persia, where people practiced Zoroastrianism. Some were even quite versed on the prophecies about a savior. So uh, these three wise men, and probably there were many more, traveled far, crossing borders to strange lands to give lavish gifts to a newborn king. Only this king was not in succession with the Roman-appointed king, and they knew that. So why would these astrologers do this? Uh, does this strike any of you as slightly risky <laughs> on their part? Why would they do this? Their presence could easily have been seen as an attempt to foment an uprising. Why then? doesn't say. Uh, what do you think? I would uh, suggest that it was probably because they believed this was no mere political king, but a savior. And it doesn't matter, you see, what part of the globe you hail from. You are living in a broken world wherever you are, and therefore you have hopes and fears. Did they think that maybe, just maybe, as a little town of Bethlehem tells us, that their hopes and fears were met in thee tonight? A true king, a true king, and a life-giving kingdom that only God and create, will draw people to it. People of any ethnicity, any persuasion, even crossing dangerous boundaries to do it. Call them spiritual refugees, if you will, seekers who must cross boundaries to find their spiritual home. Can we be there for such seekers and spiritual refugees in this world? Indeed, King Herod's spies picked up the presence of these Persian visitors and summoned them to his throne, quickly learning of their intentions. He needed to know where this child was that they sought. So the wise men were now recruited as spies for the king. Interestingly, 
this visit by the wise men was not, historians think, just days after the birth, but probably two years later. So the wise men continued to follow the star to Bethlehem. They found Mary and her child, gave their gifts to him, and were filled with great joy, it says. And after being warned in a dream not to report back to King Herod, they dodged him, returning home by a different road. Yes, things did get dangerous for them. But the wise men weren't the only ones who had a dream. Joseph, it seems, was having dreams all the time, when you read Matthew. Um, and this one, uh, in which the Lord told Joseph that Herod was out to destroy Jesus. So they were instructed to flee to Egypt until Herod died. It says that to fulfill a prophecy that out of Egypt I have called my son, I might add it was also uh, to keep Jesus alive. So here you have Jesus and his family fleeing persecution to take refuge in a land legendary for its oppression, Egypt. Ironies abound. <laughs> and yes, this means Jesus was a refugee. He was a refugee as a child. Like many families in this broken world of ours, where its various kingdoms don't foster life, but rather simply raw power, Jesus' family was on the run because they had no choice. And who is supposed to care for such families as these. I think they're still among us in the modern world. The marginalized, the vulnerable, the homeless, the immigrants. The kingdom of God to which we belong has something to say about answering that question. Meanwhile, Herod, enraged by all the wise men's uh, evasion of him, ordered that all children age two or younger, which would cover that two-year span that I, I spoke of, in and around Bethlehem, be killed. Um, unspeakably horrible, but for, from what we know of Herod, this was not uncharacteristic of him to do such a thing. Eventually, after Herod died, Joseph and Mary with Jesus moved back to Israel, but to a different district than Judea, it turned out Herod's son, who succeeded Herod, was just as ruthless as his dad. And so Jesus and his parents settled in Nazareth. And the rest is history. Now, the tension between Jesus and this world, uh, it never went away, did it? Well, Maybe it did until he turned 30 and announced his public ministry. And it was right back there. Jesus' kingdom and the values of that kingdom was not only very different from the kingdoms around him, King Herod's kingdom and the Roman kingdom, etc., it was incompatible. And that is why he eventually was killed. Jesus, you see, showed us all that in God's kingdom, the most vulnerable people who get kicked around in this world are the apple of God's eye. They matter. And to be their advocates is deeply political. To heal and forgive people who don't deserve it was an affront to the social and political order 
And Jesus did that all the time. It still is an affront today to advocate allocating resources to the vulnerable, whether it's food, shelter, health care, any of those things, is political. Not easy stuff, I get it, but this is kingdom work. <laughs> it's interesting to take notice of how kingdoms and cultures juxtaposing with one another in this world displace people in the Christmas story, isn't it? And, 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 so, and so it is that Christ, the newborn king, going back to Luke now, entered a world where, uh, no, well, this isn't Luke, where innocents suffer and people flee in terror. And when they cannot flee, they become refugees in their own land. Now we're back to Luke. You remember how in the Christmas story, how it begins in Luke, with the Roman governor Quirinius calling for a census where many, especially the least powerful, must uproot cross boundaries and travel to their place of origin to enroll. Not easy to do when you have few resources. Now, in the Roman Empire, a census like this was not held to ensure representation in a democracy, you know, like it is here. Oh, no. It was done usually to intimidate and often as a means to conscript, conscript people into the army to fight the wars of the emperor. So Mary and Joseph's lives were massively disrupted by the kingdom of Rome. This is the world we live in. This is why God came to be with us. We flee. We seek. We are displaced, if not literally, emotionally. And God says, I will be with you in your most powerless moments. There's a growing number of people in our world who are spiritual refugees, like the three wise men. As the U2 song goes, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's a mantra for so many. Such a snapshot of this world. People crossing boundaries either to flee or to seek political refugees, spiritual refugees. Our church, this one right here, stands at a crossroads. We, like many churches out there, lament how people today are not interested in God anymore. We say that because they don't come to our church services. But the truth is, everyone is seeking a kingdom, whether they are conscious of that fully or not. They're seeking a world that gives them hope and addresses their fears. The truth is this world around us is full of wise men and women seeking a sign, a sign of hope that their lives aren't meaningless, that there's something bigger out there, hope that they can find healing for their shame or their depression that weighs heavily on their spirits, that they can find rest from their fleeing and seeking and find what they're looking for. And people, and people fear. They fear that they will run out of money, not have adequate health care, not find a community to which they can belong. They fear they will be literally deported or persecuted for their ethnicity or beliefs. 
These people are all around us, and in fact, they are us. They are looking for peace, the peace that only a peaceable kingdom can offer. The newborn king is the king of this peaceable kingdom, crossing and transcending all borders in order to unite us all. In this king, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in a God who uses his power only to foster and nourish life. How can we let that good news sink in with us as our own life is being stewarded and nourished by this loving God? How can we share such good news as this? How can we connect with the seekers who are not in here, but out there? And when we see people who are refugees, can we recognize they are the children of a broken world where kingdoms too often crush spirits? Can we see this is why Jesus came into this world? Perhaps each one of us can be a sign, a sign of hope to someone that a Savior has come into this world and with it a kingdom that nurtures life. Amen.